0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And it is four o'clock on Tuesday home time and it is Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until six this evening. We'll be hearing from Bishop George Browning, the former bishop for Canberra and Goulburn area, talking about the situation for Palestinians in Palestine and Israel. How to Make Trouble and Influence People, a new diary is out for 2019, work of Ian McIntyre. Research researcher and journalist Nick McClellan, has been to the Pacific Forum meeting in Nauru. Genetics Network's Bob Phelps is here to talk about issues relating to genetic engineering. And Graeme Double will be telling us about being forced to leave Bougainville by DFAT, the Australian Government's arm of trade and development, from Bougainville. But first, Mr Kevin Healy.
2: A week, journalist, listen, when the excitement builds as we approach the big game, the one day of the year. Oh, train killer day. Don't be stupid. Uh, invasion day. No. Uh, Her Most Gracious Majesty's birthday. No. A Cup Day, Grand Prix Day, Fashion Week every day. No, no, go away. The excitement builds and the sensations pile up with the defending Premier, the caring business class team, dumping its captain on the eve of the finals and declaring the only thing that matters is extracting the ridiculously bloated admission prices at the box office and dismissing the shocking state of the ground as irrelevant, denying the dying grass and cracking soil are dying and cracking our only concern is reducing those ridiculously bloated admission prices for the average supporter um, which you keep increasing please don't interrupt let me finish an attempt to save the grass and soil would force prices even higher far far backward pocket defender Angus tailings or express sincere concern for the fans As long as the fans are powered by good, clean coal. (laughs) He cracked a very, very funny joke. And my team so encourages women, we have named the star women we encourage as emergencies. That will protect them from injury. New captain scuttled them more or less than boasted. The socialist team acting captain, Tania Pliber Sack Socialism, accused the defending Premier of caring only about winning the game and ignoring the fans forking out the ridiculously bloated admission prices. Uh, so in everything you say, Tania, you aren't thinking about winning the game? No, not for a second. Uh, so you don't want to win? Unlike our opponents, we only want to win to help the supporters in the stands. Our opponents only care about themselves. Notice Friday, Scuttlebem said the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Kelly Oda Wire, workers so evil was an outstanding, shining example to all True Blue Aussie women which says heaps about his attitude to women. Then again, after the minister for keeping us secure and maintaining the concentration camps razor wire and sinking the votes, Constable Peter Duffer again proved the House had confidence in him by voting to declare he had confidence in himself, one vote his own, after a former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Makadia Kosh, the workers, told us, he's an outstanding minister. Which, along with Scuttleman's praise of Kelly, shows that Lot's attitude to humanity, or more so, quality, comes off a very, very low base. Sadly for us, the other side of that misogyny has been suffering the cloying, indeed nauseous, opportunism of Socialist Party supremo and would-be big supremo little Billy Shorten ambition declaring his love for women, always said with a mute woman would-be minister standing behind him nodding. As he announced, for instance, the government would top up superannuation for women losing out over maternity leave and related obligations. Uh, Little Billy, the caring employers must be really upset that the public purse will pick up their responsibilities. No, no, the caring employers thoroughly endorse my pro-women policy. (laughs) We bet they do. We had a follow-up question or two, like, was the timing of the announcement coincidental and wasn't super supposed to relieve the pressure on the public purse and not increase it? But little Billy was too busy slobbering kisses on about 200 babies, 200 poor little kids, poor little innocents. We commented last week on Kelly's appointment of big end-of-town law firm Free Kills the Workers, our biggest highly responsible anti-evil unions advisor and author of Work Non-Choices, appointment of Free Kills the Workers alumni Graham Swatts worker's son, Macaulay, of course, another alumni, Graham, as her caring business class relations advisor. Graham resigned from his vice-president position at Fair Work No Longer Work Choices Just Looks Like It because of its blatant bias toward workers and evil unions and the desperate need to reform industrial relations law to make it fairer for poor, beleaguered, caring employers. Well, this week Kelly got off to a flying start as Wednesday she introduced her first bill as minister to make it easier to sack evil union bosses and deregister evil unions altogether. Back to the big game. We also mentioned last week the annual footy finals headline that the government would stamp down on scalpers. Sure, sure, like every other year. But the champion scalper of the week award had to go collectively to our airlines who increased fares to Perth from about $300 to $1,500 the second the siren sounded, sending Melbourne across the Nullarbor. Market forces, supply and demand, they explained, the rip-off although in retrospect they may have done all those desperate long-suffering demons who couldn't afford the market forces supply and demand a favour saving them from paying a fortune to see their heroes slaughtered the ripped off did have the full sympathy of that filthy rich grazier turned footy big supremo Gil mcclock them i hope you understand the circumstances well yes we do Gil. we've already said it rip off Wonder if the Don filthy rich understand gills understand and the Lord Rupert of Wapping sin has to get some sort of marks for managing to fill 28 pages Friday over just two footy matches, about 20 of them devoted to just one, a monumental achievement. We would have advised those forking out their hard-earned to make sure they took out insurance. yes. The highly respected industry concurred, our extraordinarily generous policy guarantees unlimited cover. Unlimited? Certainly, once you sign up, the amounts we can rip off are unlimited, and you pay up immediately if anything happens. Put it this way, we give you an immediate response to your false claim. Reminds me, saw this ad the other night, some retail mob promising 40% of all stock in store. And then the very last fading line, exceptions apply. And I thought, which bit of all is not all? Shocking expose, Lord Rupert of Whopping Sin P1 this week. Wages bonanza on Westgate Tunnel Metro Rail. Project pay dirt. Workers being paid to work. Okay, so the great tollway owner transfer your money urban will make trillions by transferring our money into voracious coppers for even more years and years, but that's just good business practice, not evil union and lazy, avaricious worker greed. Any wonder poor Kelly needs to get those evil union bosses sacked and this blot on caring business class relations deregistered. Workers earning money, who ever heard of it? Bringing us to the who'd be a caring employer department Take one of our favourite rational thinkers, Innes will Cost workers of the True Blue Industry Profits Group, forced to attack a socialist party, irresponsible proposal that employers be forced to pay super for extremely low-income earners and for casual workers who may well be the same people. With some silly suggestion, this will increase the retirement incomes of women in particular, given the socialist party currently just loves women for no particular pragmatic reason Paul Innes pointed out the charges would benefit men more than women, now there's a surprise but would disproportionately increase caring employers costs Improving retirement incomes for women is of course an important goal, Innes expressed his concern,
3: however
2: uh, yes Innes, if workers cost so much why not get rid of them altogether, eliminate those crippling costs Obviously, that would be impractical. It could provide a barrier to we caring employers making the profits that so benefit society as a whole. So workers make profit, they're not a cost. We caring employers could make even greater profits that so benefit society as a whole if it were not for those crippling costs showing how evil unions and costly, lazy, avaricious workers do not share our concern for society as a whole. And as the aged care industry reels from a few left hooks, it has been forced to point out that mooted legislation to enforce staff ratios and appropriately trained staff would add $5 billion to their costs and therefore, presumably, the nation can't afford proper train staff levels, given the nation forks out most of their profits from the public purse, which Innes and Bay and Kelly and Graham and that lot know is a sensible role for government that generally should keep out of these things and leave them to the great market forces. And finally, distressing story, property section, true blue capitalist review, opening par, direct quote, Sydney hotels are the fourth most profitable in the Asia-Pacific region, but would deliver even higher returns if... Okay, listener, what comes next? What is the if, the cruel barrier to these great contributors to society's higher returns? Got it. Even higher returns if labour costs were lower. Under a headline, Labour Costs Hit Hotel Profitability. Talk about greed. Here we have caring employers providing work for these people, filling in their otherwise boring, meaningless days and nights, and what thanks do they get? The bloody workers expect to get paid at the end of the week as well. Take, take, take. Never satisfied. Ah, who'd be a caring employer? Good afternoon.
1: Good afternoon, Kevin Healy. And um, you can say good morning to Kevin tomorrow at 9 o'clock for... City Limits here at 3CR. On the program last week, George Browning, the retired Bishop of Canberra and Goulburn, spoke about evangelical churches, including the Prime Ministers, and their influence on politics here and in the US. Today, the second part of this interview, I asked George to put on his other hat which is as the president of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, and asked him to comment on recent events affecting Palestine.
4: It's extremely serious and deeply, deeply worrying what has happened. It's um, both from within Israel itself and from the United States of America. America, From within Israel, as your listeners will be aware, the Knesset has passed legislation which has the same kind of weight as a constitution, that uh, Israel is a Jewish nation and that non people who are not Jews do not have the same status or, or rights as citizens as Jews do. So it has actually entrenched, it hasn't changed practice, but it actually has entrenched in law dual sense of citizenship, which is uh, only one of its kinds, to the best of my knowledge, in the whole Western world, maybe wider than that, but it's... Uh, It's a very worrying development, and uh, your listeners are probably aware that in Israel itself, quite apart from the West Bank and Gaza, but in Israel itself, 20%, 20% of Israeli citizens are non-Jews, including Arabs and, and of course, a minority community of Druze.
1: How does that impact on that 20%?
4: There was a program recently, um, I've forgotten now whether it was the ABC or or, or SBS, in which um, a very prominent israeli arab who is a singer who actually sang in for israel in the eurovision said that from now onwards she knows that in the constitution she is not a full citizen of the country she hasn't been in any case but now it's entrenched and of course it means it relates to property it mean it, mean it relates to identification business, uh, capacity to travel what you can own uh, in some cases, the work that you can uh, apply for, etc. And then in, in that law, it uh, expressed the idea that settlements are part of what it means to be an Israeli. And so, well, it didn't specifically specify settlements in the Palestinian territories. Presumably that's what the reader was supposed to understand. But when you put that with, in the United States of America, they have now withdrawn their support for UNWAR, which is the United Nations relief organisation that cares for Palestinian refugees, and there is a. on top of that, there is a, an attempt to undermine the legitimacy of NGOs like um, Oxfam and World Vision, etc. There is a very strong attempt to take away from the Palestinian community the support that they've, they've up till now relied upon financially, economically. And uh, morally, I suppose. And why are they doing that? Well, presumably because Donald Trump is about to announce his so-called solution, which one can only tremble to think what it actually it involves, but clearly it involves Palestine, the Palestinians giving up any sense of right they have to Jerusalem, their capital. It almost certainly means giving up any sense of right they might have of return as refugees to the land from which they've been driven out. And it probably means that uh, a two-state solution, as has up till now been believed to be possible, will no longer be delivered. So it really is quite quite a dreadful situation, and we'll wait and see really what Trump and his son-in-law Kreshner actually have to say.
1: And that's it, isn't it? You have to look at the people behind Trump.
4: Yes, this is as much about domestic politics in the States as it is about policy in Israel. And the, the, the hopeful part about this, though, Jan, is that there are many more liberal-minded or progressively-minded Jews who themselves are aghast at what is happening. And uh, your listeners are probably aware that after the israeli state law was announced there were very very large protests in tel aviv not by arabs but by the jewish community not wanting to live in a country which is behaving as if it is an apartheid state because who would want to live in such a place there are amongst the young both young jews and young palestinians a desire for all the boundaries to be dropped and for people to live harmoniously together which (laughs) obviously is the ideal, but whether in practice it's ever going to happen is another matter. Uh, That's not to say all young are like that. Clearly, um, some young Jews and some young Arabs have been radicalised into digging the trenches around their own boundaries, but uh, there is a hopeful sign amongst some of them that they don't want to live in this country. They don't want the past to dictate the present. That's the difficulty in the Middle East. That past history dictates present reality and if people can be relieved of the burden of the past, the memory of the Holocaust and partitions and uh, boundaries and stuff and and live in the present, then there is hope. But it, it won't happen unless there is help and pressure from the international community.
1: And also the increasing, what I see, calling of Palestinians, Israeli Arabs or middle east arabs rather than calling them palestinians
4: the ones who live in israel are israeli arabs i mean they have israeli citizenship and they are they are arabs who live in israel they are palestinians as well it would suit israel to obliterate the name palestine clearly that that would be an ideal situation for them but the reality is that there are five million bit more than that palestinians and there are five million nearly of jews or round about it's round about the same but as i understand it the palestinian birth rate is greater than the israeli immigration rate so that it isn't really possible for israel to maintain a sense of their territory being jewish and democratic the two the two just won't along together and in the new state law there is no reference to to israel as a democratic state
1: and also the fact that there are jewish people in israel who are leaving
4: oh yes well again there was a program the other day about a number of young jewish males and females leaving to go back to germany think that in a mobile world Youngsters want to live like other, other youngsters of any race on the face of the planet, and they don't want to be dictated to by a past history. And terrible, terrible things have happened, and the Holocaust is one of the most terrible things that has happened in human history. But it cannot and should not define the present for generations, what were now two or three generations past that event. As we know, following the First World War, one of the terrible things that happened was the Treaty of Versailles, which sought to punish the German nation for for what it had done in the First World War, only to find that uh, this instigated rebellion and determination from the Germans, which had resulted in the Second World War. And it's easy to win a battle. It's easy for, the, for Israel, to, with its huge armament, to to keep the Palestinians in their quarter, as it were, but it's a very different matter to win a peace and to win respect and trust, which is, should be and must be the aim of anybody who wants to live in a peaceful, harmonious world.
1: Finally, George, the hundreds of millions of dollars that Trump is withdrawing from Palestine. Are, are 800,
4: the, 800 million.
1: Are other countries say. stepping in?
4: Well, that is the hope. Uh, I don't know whether they have or not stepped in. It's an awfully big, it's an awfully large sum of money to have to find. I suspect that the European Union will stump up some of that money. There's pressure on Australia to follow suit. And the fear is that we will because we seem to always want to follow America in these matters. There is a campaign in the um, in News Limited and with a, a, a small number of, conservative politicians in, uh, in our federal parliament to besmirch ANWAR and World Vision, etc., claiming that monies have been uh, diverted to um, terrorist activity. If there is, let's see the evidence there isn't any. The CEO of World Vision has been in jail now, I think it's for 16 months on the basis that he was instrumental in diverting World Vision money in Gaza to terrorist activity to Hamas, there is no evidence that uh, that happened. A forensic audit has taken place to more or less prove it didn't happen, but nevertheless is still in jail without charge and uh, without any conviction. So there is this, this ongoing attempt, uh, and um, as I say, unfortunately, those voices they even hear in Australia to besmirch any support for palestine and palestinian people in this context it is so important that people speak up and and that the truth is made made clear it should not be seen to be anti-jewish let alone anti-israel to point out some of the failings of israel's policy there is a tendency for people like myself to be called anti-semitic i'm not anti-semitic quite the reverse i cherish jewish links within my own family and uh, certainly within the faith that i am a leader in in the christian faith which is gets gained so much from the jewish from the jewish faith but the fact of the matter is that israel has one of this one of the most outrageous right-wing governments in the world that seems to believe that it can do whatever it likes and will not allow any criticism of its policy and uh, and we need to have courageous journalists or leaders who will constantly speak up and call it to account, and I hope that we will have retain those voices in Australia.
1: Thank you so much.
4: You're welcome, Jan.
1: And we certainly will continue it here at 3CR. That's Bishop George Browning, who's the former Anglican Bishop of Canberra and Goulburn and also the President of Australia... Palestine Advocacy Network.
5: The Environmental Film Festival Australia is on again. See the impact of climate change and meet heroes fighting for justice. Witness the beauty of nature and hear the sounds of our world. Meet the filmmakers and experts inspiring change and join the conversation to create a sustainable future. Face the facts, face the future, face the films. The Environmental Film Festival Australia, in Melbourne from October the 11th to the 19th. Tickets at effa.org.au. A 3CR supporter. When you flip through
1: the pages of a diary or calendar, what you see are the so-called important events or holidays coming up for that year. Ian McIntyre's How to Make Trouble and Influence People, Diary for 2019, is the exact opposite. What you read for every day of the coming year is an event somewhere in Australia where grassroots Australians made their own history through activities and opposition to the status quo, so many facing violent opposition, resulting in injury, arrests, jailing, in some cases death. But. Undeterred, the battle continues to this day. I'm speaking now with Ian about the diary. This has to be a labour of love, Ian. How many years have you been producing this and before that calendars and books? And have you always had the title How to Make Trouble and Influence People?
6: I guess the diary, uh, I did one a couple of years ago for 3CR. And its uh, genesis, I suppose, comes from the How to Make Trouble and Influence People series of short books or fanzines that were sort of done in the 90s that focused on kind of creative direct action and, and radical protest in Australian history. So I guess I, I've kind of kept the title. Maybe it's become a bit of a brand name <laughs> because it, it sort of sums up what I'm trying to cover with these with these different publications. So there was the book, which was sort of a whole lot of snippets of history with some longer stories in Australian sort of radical history covering sort of 200 years of strikes and Indigenous resistance and picket line, hijinks and street art and blockades and protests and so forth. So sort of an alternative history of Australia or kind of left-wing and uh, further out history of australia so basically i suppose with all this material that i had a few years ago i thought i'd do a diary because we'd done the calendars at 3cr the seeds of descent ones in the 2000s and part of it was also that i needed a diary and i had bought a radical diary from overseas and it fell apart on me Hmm. (laughs) so i thought you know what (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I can do one of these. So, yeah, so basically uh, there was one, I think, in 2016. And, yeah, there's been a bit of a few years gap because uh, I've been busy with some other things, but I had a little bit of time, so I thought I'd put one together for next year. And, and essentially it's got a radical date in Australian history for every day of the year. I'm just looking at the diary so sort of choosing something at random.
1: But also events, photos, street art. And I'd imagine yes. that you'd be part of a few of those actions that you've got in this book, in yeah, this diary. There's,
6: there's a few in there. I mean, I, um, a lot of the dates I got this time was from uh, one of the Communist Party papers, The Tribune. So I sort of went through 20 years of The Tribune just picking out any any kind of interesting strikes or interesting protests and so forth but there's a few things i've been (laughs) involved in too so yeah every day in the diary has a has a radical date so yeah choosing one at random we've got may 29th Fremantle 1876 six irish prisoners escaped the colony aboard the u.s ship the catalpa which is probably one of the more of the famous ones Mm -hmm. and then on the may the 28th you've got uh Melbourne 1978, Melbourne technical school cleaners go on strike over state government plans to outsource their jobs to private companies.
2: So you've got these little
6: sort of one-liner, what happened on this day, and then, yeah, and then you've got sort of stories with photos, and they, yeah, basically go back about 150 years.
1: And it's not just people, have you just said, sort of marching in the street or... Having banners, it's it's the inventiveness and the clever ways that people over the years have got their message across.
6: Yes, so yeah, there's um, some sort of pictures of occupations. There's some billboard revisions, you know, by bugger up the uh, billboard, utilising graffitiists against unhealthy promotions, (laughs) who during the 80s would most famous for. Spray painting and changing the messages on tobacco billboards, but a couple of examples I've got in the diary are actually, which I'll, I'll, I won't tell people what they are, but are kind of more about the car industry and the advertising industry. So, so they were sort of not just targeting tobacco, but other things that potentially are kind of unhealthy. And yeah, there's also uh, there's a great for me. I guess I really like to emphasise the creative and the cheeky side of things. And so I've got some photos from pro-choice demonstrations in 1979 and there's a fantastic one where there's, you know, a demonstration in Canberra and there's the anti-abortionists there, but then some other women have snuck in front of them. With a banner saying catholic women in favor of abortion which in itself isn't funny but the fact that they've got in front of the right to life and um, put that up was pretty clever we 've got some pictures of people with their dogs dog carrying various banners and so forth
1: of course it's people pitting themselves against the power of the state isn't it whether it's the police or the military in yes. often cases
6: yep yep there's i mean there's another image um, which pretty amazing image. Uh, you can see a US flag burning inside the um, Sydney Stock Exchange in 1970 when, during the anti Vietnam kind of protests, people invaded the stock exchange and spray painted over the tally boards and basically went in, did a quick action, and then, and then sort of got out and got away with it. And, you know, also somebody with an all-purpose stop-being-awful placard, which I imagine they could (laughs) take to just about any demonstration they like. But there's also murals and and street art and so forth. So, so yeah, really trying to emphasise that history of people in numbers large and small kind of speaking out, grabbing attention, fighting back.
1: And many people in our society say we're compliant, we don't rock the boat but I think putting a diary together like this to show just how much and how many circumstances people are willing to rock the boat and often put their lives on the line.
6: Yeah look and I think that's one of the things I like about, I mean in the books uh, which I've written about this stuff, I've always tried to have a real mixture of places and times and showing that it's not just been in the big cities or it's not just been, you know, during those particular eras that people might think of like the Depression or the 1960s that there's been kind of consistently, you know, there's ebbs and flows but consistently people kind of standing up for progressive causes and so forth. What I do like with the diary kind of format and, you know, I'm I'm obviously... Not the first person to do this. And as I say, I had a radical diary from overseas that used a similar style is that you kind of every day when you're going in to write in, you know, what you got to do, you've got this little story and it really allows you to kind of mix the years and the places and so, and the issues up so that, you know, you're constant. Yeah. Every day you're getting a little, little bit of inspiration, hopefully.
1: Absolutely. And the work to put it all together. You must have a huge database somewhere.
6: Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, with I guess I have compiled a lot of stuff over the last 20, 25 years. A lot of them, these materials were sort of new. One of one of the things I guess with you know the internet and digitisation is that new archives are becoming available all the time. So there's a number of photos that are reproduced in here which came from Communist Party's paper Tribune and a lot of their photos have now been digitised by the State Library of New South Wales. So, you know, that was a whole sort of treasure trove of things that I was able to find Um, and there was another archive that's been digitised and so I was able to get some kind of lino cuts and stuff that were done by radical artists in the 1930s. And there's also a couple of new photographers. Well, they're not new, but people who were taking photos in the 80s and 90s who started to get their work around, and so you know I was able to contact them. And so I do have quite a collection of stuff. But there's also new, new old stuff (laughs) becoming available all the time.
1: So it's not just a case of filling in every day. It's it's for you. It's a case of what will I leave out.
6: Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the challenges is every time I've done, when I did the seeds of descent calendars, uh, history calendars, and when I've done these diaries, I do like to change over a significant amount of the dates. So, when the diary came out, the last one, I did all new dates, and this one, it's about half new dates that haven't been in, you know, previous publications I've done. So, sometimes it's a challenge of what to leave out. sometimes you just get that one day where it's like you know <laughs> it just doesn't seem like anything particularly uh, really exciting happened that day, <laughs> but um, for the most part, yeah, it's, it's more a question of having too much material rather than too little.
1: I'm a bit fascinated by the the um choice you can have a a red or a green cover on it.
6: Yeah, look, decided to go with two covers. Tom Civil, uh, who's a Melbourne-based artist who's done a lot of work for 3CR over the years, he did the design on the seeds of Descent calendars and used to do design for various stickers and so forth. He came up with two cover designs. One's got a, a girl with a bomb, and that's in red, and that was from a patch... But he also came up with this other great design, which is in green, which is kind of a collage of a whole lot of different protests and placards from different eras. And basically, I just couldn't choose between them. So I thought, well, not everyone's going to want to have the girl with the bomb when they go into a meeting. You know, some people are going to like the girl with the bomb. So I just decided to go with both. So hopefully there's something there for um, you know, for everyone.
1: And also the fact that this book is about everyone. It's about Aboriginal people, young people, older people, trade unionists, squatters, lesbian and gay. All people are in this book.
6: Yeah, look, I really tried to um, show a breadth of issues and a breadth of periods. And um, yeah, well, it's, it sounds like, you know, hopefully it succeeded in that.
1: And the launch?
6: Yeah, so got a launch coming up on October the 6th at the Old Bar, which is on Johnson Street in Fitzroy. Yeah, that's just something fun to sort of launch it. It's free entry. There'll be some music from Laura McFarlane and from Cold Hands, Warm Heart. And uh, I'll probably get up and say a few things and, and read a little bit from, from the diary. It's worth mentioning the... Diary and the launch are both benefits for Community Radio 3CR but also for the Rainforest Information Centre, so the profits go to those two organisations. So, yeah, the launch will be between 3 and 6 pm on Saturday, October the 6th, and, um, yeah, come on down and eat. Drink, well, don't think there'll be any food there other than packets of chips. So (laughs) (laughs) it's probably more a matter of uh, drink, read and be merry. And, uh, yeah, 20% of the bar goes to 3CR and Rainforest Information Centre and uh, you can pick up a diary there or you can get uh, copies through 3CR or various bookstores around Melbourne.
1: Just for those who aren't familiar with the Rainforest Information Centre...
6: RIC's been going since the 1980s. It came out of the Terrania Creek blockade, so uh, people may or may not be familiar. In 1979, people in northern New South Wales launched uh, Australia's first blockade in a forest, and they uh, ended up saving that forest. And basically out of that, primarily John Seed, but but other people became aware of rainforest issues and they kind of reached out. Basically, there was a government inquiry into the logging of rainforests and so they reached out to try and find scientists and so forth around the world who could support them because really the science around rainforests and these kind of ecologies wasn't very well known at the time and there weren't really any kind of networks of people trying to do something around these issues. And what they discovered was, uh, yeah, that there were a whole lot of other people around the world who were who were also working in a kind of isolated fashion on this stuff. So Rainforest Information Centre, I guess, became kind of an informal network and information sharing kind of node. And so they published a, a magazine for years called World Rainforest Report, uh, which had kind of kept people up to date on what was happening around rainforest issues. And through their efforts and also efforts of Friends of the Earth in the UK and um, groups in the US, rainforest kind of became a a global issue by the end of the 80s. So they've continued with that activism since. Currently they're supporting things like the Melbourne Rainforest Action Group. They've been supporting kind of reforestation work in northern New South Wales and, and other places uh, in India and so forth. It's been done by sort of indigenous and local communities. One of the big things they're involved with is supporting the Los Cedros Biodiversity Reserve, which is something also that Melbourne Rainforest Action Group have been working on and that's a. a Tropical rainforest reserve in Ecuador. And what's interesting with that was that Rainforest Information Centre in the late 80s helped get some Australian government aid money to buy this reserve. You know, kind of incredibly biodiverse place. But now, unfortunately, uh, even though it has been protected for decades from kind of farming and logging, now mining companies are moving in and mining companies are moving in all over Ecuador into indigenous owned land and, and uh very kind of unique and biodiverse kind of environmental ecosystems and so yeah they're sort of supporting activists uh in Ecuador and in Australia are trying to stop that.
1: We better give a plug for three C R as well.
6: Yeah. So yes, it's also a benefit for uh the greatest radio station in the world.
1: That'll do. Congratulations once again. (laughs) Thanks, Dan. And it is congratulations too. It's a wonderful diary and not to be missed and I'll display you the, the message of how to get it and when the launch is.
5: for the launch of the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary on Saturday the 6th of October from 3 to 6pm at the Old Bar Johnson Street, Fitzroy. There'll be readings as well as music from Cold Hands, Warm Heart and Laura McFarlane. is free Proceeds from the diary sales and 20% of the afternoon's bar takings will be donated to 3CR and the Rainforest Information Centre. So come read, drink and be merry. How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary Launch. The Old Bar Saturday 6th of October 3 to 6pm. See you there. 3CR supporter.
1: Early this morning I spoke with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan just back from Nauru and the Pacific Forum meeting and my first question to Nick was who was there and who wasn't there?
7: The Pacific Islands Forum is an annual meeting that brings together 18 countries, Australia and New Zealand, are the two uh, largest powers in the forum, but uh, it includes most of the independent and sovereign Pacific Island nations, our neighbours like Papua New Guinea, Solomons, Vanuatu and so on, and also two French colonies, um, French Polynesia and New Caledonia, which uh, only joined in uh, 2016 as full members of the forum. This year, the Presidents and Prime Ministers assembled. Um, there was a couple of absences. Obviously, Scott Morrison, uh, newly uh, arrived in power from the Canberra coup, uh, was absent. And Australia was represented by Foreign Minister Maurice Payne. And the new Assistant Minister for International Development in the Pacific, Anne Ruston, was there in Nauru also for the week. PNG's Prime Minister, Peter O'Neill, was a no-show. He's uh, got uh, a number of... Uh, uh, major commitments coming up uh, in Parliament and also the big APEC meeting, which uh, Papua New Guinea is hosting in November. So uh, Neil's absence was noted, and he, PNG once again represented by its Foreign Minister, Rimbing Pato. But beyond that, uh, there were old faces and new, uh, long-serving leaders like uh, aneli Sopoanga of Tuvalu, uh, Tui Lapa, the Prime Minister of Samoa, who's been at more forums than I've had hot dinners, the new gal on the block was Jacinda Ardern, um, New Zealand's new Prime Minister, attending her first forum alongside uh, Winston Peters. How's that for an odd couple? Anyone who's seen pictures of the two of them together will realise they're a, a funny combination. But New Zealand obviously a big player in the forum.
1: Fiji still on the outer?
7: Fiji's always represented th- these meetings at ministerial level. Frank Bainimarama hasn't come to forums ever since the... ...2006 coup and obviously the abrogation of the constitution in 2009 when Fiji was suspended from forum activities. Since their elections in 2014, uh, Fiji has been represented by ministers. This year it was Trade Minister Fayaz uh, Koya and a delegation of senior officials from Fiji Foreign Affairs. There's talk that Bainimarama might come next year. Um, you know, There's been a rapprochement between the forum and uh, Fiji uh, over recent years uh, since the 2014 elections... Fiji holds elections um, later this year, and it's likely that Bainimarama's Fiji First Party will once again win a majority, maybe a reduced majority, but uh, the current polls suggest he'll be returned to office. So, next year in Tuvalu, a close ally of Fiji, we may see uh, Bainimarama at his first Forum Leaders' Meeting.
1: Now, as you've said, there's small island states and there's large island states, and the small island states had a meeting earlier than the Forum. What did they resolve?
7: Every year, the a smaller island states caucus, which is the eight smaller members of the of the uh, the grouping, are uh, they caucus beforehand, a couple of days before the official opening of the leaders meeting? Um, these are you know very small countries like Tuvalu and Nauru, with about eleven thousand people each. Uh, Kiribati's got hundred thousand, but it's a very small and vulnerable nation. Uh, we've talked many times on this program about uh, the vulnerable. Uh, Atoll nations who face problems with uh, climate change and uh, urbanisation. So Marshall Islands, Federated States of Micronesia, Niue, tiny Niue with 1,200 people, 1,500 people. These are countries that have particular problems that are different, obviously, to Australia and New Zealand, but also a country like Papua New Guinea, which has 8 million people and is heading on the way to 20 million in coming years. PNG is a big country by Pacific standards, bigger than New Zealand in land area and population. So the smaller island states get together and talk about their particular concerns. A lot of it's about transport and communications. How can you keep up the volume of people moving backwards and forwards um, You know, to a country of 10,000 people? How do you maintain an airline with such a small population? They have particular problems around development, around transport, around communications. They obviously also have a central concern about climate change and uh, the impacts on human development. You know, these are in many cases, low-lying atoll nations just a few metres above sea level, so they're at great risk from storm surges, from extreme weather events, and from the long, slow-onset effects of climate change, things like ocean acidification, damage to the reef ecology, um, sea level rise, obviously, and and, uh, salinity of water supplies, all these sort of slow-burning problems are something there. And so you see, always from the... SIS communique, the Smaller Island States communique, calls for much more stronger, urgent, faster action on climate change. Uh, the little guys have punched above their weights, to use the cliché, uh, in the global negotiations. People like Anote Tong, the former president of Kiribati, the late uh, Tony de of the Marshall Islands, and Eli Sopawanga of Tuvalu. These are uh, political leaders that have played a really crucial role in the global climate negotiations. And They, each year, have an outcome statement and they try and push the larger forum member countries to uh, support their particular concerns. And this year there was a major breakthrough. Uh, Using the diplomatic language, uh, the forum traditionally takes note of the smaller island states' outcomes, their objectives and their their demands. You know, taking note of it says, oh, good on you fellows, thanks very much, and then we go on doing what we want to do. This year, with one qualification the forum leaders endorsed the SIS communiques. And when you go back to look at the language of the document, as I did in the final press conference, you see that it's calling for urgent acceleration of greenhouse gas emissions. Now, there's one country in the forum, and we all know who it is, who not only don't want to accelerate their reduction of emissions, but even seem to be abandoning any emissions targets. We know that the Turnbull coup... Once again, people say, oh, there was nothing, what, what was the coup about? One of the things the coup was about was once again destroying any coherent climate policy. And the mining lobby has done its job, the coal industry has done its job to once again bring down a government that was edging towards even a crappy policy like the, the National Energy Guarantee. Um, and they succeeded in blowing that out of the water. And Pacific Island governments, particularly the smaller island states, are really anxious about what we're seeing in Australia at the moment, and so the call in the outcomes document was for um, stronger action, more urgent action, uh, accelerated action on emissions reduction. And that's everything that Canberra's not doing.
5: Well, how
1: did they get round that one?
7: Well, the forum forges a consensus. It's a, it's a body that meets, the leaders go off. Part of the meeting is one day the leaders go into a room together and talk about their concerns person to person, without officials, without note-taking and so on. And you can only find out what happens in the room through leaks or through asking people. Um, and as a reporter, I was there as a correspondent for Ireland's Business Magazine. Please subscribe, keep me in a job. Ireland's Business Magazine reported on uh, the the thing. I was the only Australian journalist who went to the final press conference. Other journalists from the Australian, the Daily Telegraph, were on the island, but they were just following the Australian lead on what the issues were. And at the final press conference, I asked of Ali's Prime Minister, Anali Soparangar, isn't it unique that they, leaders have endorsed your call? Not just noted it, but endorsed it. It's the first time it's ever happened. And he acknowledged that that was true. But the communique says, with qualification. And I asked him, who or what was the qualification? And uh, he was diplomatic enough, not wanting to name the country. But when I asked him whether it was a country beginning with capital A, he agreed. And so... You know, going through the alphabet of the forum members, it's not rocket science. Um, you know, Albania and Austria are complaining that they're being associated with such bad behaviour, but we all know that the problem is Canberra. We all know that our current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, was a man who took a lump of coal into Parliament in February 2017. We all know, or we all should know, that the man he's appointed as his Chief of Staff in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet is a former lobbyist for Rio Tinto, one of Australia's biggest coal exporters. This is a man who was Deputy CEO of the Minerals Council of Australia for many years, John Kunkel. Um, We know that Angus Taylor, the Energy Minister, is a man who's campaigned against wind power and renewables for most of his political life. These are people who are running Australia's climate policy at the moment. And it's a serious problem, and our neighbours know that. They're frankly looking forward, I think many of them, to uh, change of government next year. Will the Labour Party do any better? Well, let's see. But I think there's a, a real concern. And the concern is not about the you know, details of particular policies. It's the bigger picture. The Trump administration has withdrawn from the Paris Agreement on climate change, or is in the process of withdrawing. They've announced that the, of the $3 billion pledge that the Obama administration gave of funding to the Green Climate Fund, they would stop the funding. So Obama pledged $3 billion for this new global mechanism to support developing countries Uh, in their climate action. A billion dollars got out the door by the end of his administration. Serious money, a good 10% of the global fund. Um, And Trump said the the remaining $2 billion would be halted. So for Pacific Island countries, they look at what's going on in America and then they look to see whether other countries might follow the Trump administration's lead. And what they see in Canberra worries them because Australia is a mid-level power with internationally a a pretty good reputation. Australian citizens might disagree with that, but internationally Australia is seen as a responsible, you know, good international citizen. And if we were to withdraw from the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, it would send the dominoes falling around the world. It would give licence to many other countries that are wavering about their commitment to this significant transformation of economy, of energy systems, of agriculture, of society. Our Pacific neighbours are, are frankly, shit-scared that governments in Australia will not only bugger up Australia's environment program, energy program, but they will set a cascade of other countries who follow the Trump administration. That's really worrying them. And they look at what sort of stuff's coming out of Canberra. The former Minister for International Development in the Pacific, Senator Conchetta Fioravanti-Wells, one of only two ministers whose resignation was accepted by Turnbull during that fratricidal week in the Liberal Party, She's openly calling for ditching the Paris Agreement, for building new coal-fired power stations, now that she's back on the backbench. She and Tony Abbott and others are still campaigning to ditch what what fragments of climate policy still exist with the coalition. And uh, that's worrying our neighbours.
1: You just think of climate change with uh, the increase in the oceans and also the, the temperature of the oceans, which means more storms and the depletion of the fishing areas in the Pacific, and those island states depend in a great deal on those fisheries.
7: It has multifaceted impacts. You know, it's the ultimate, what they say, cross-cutting issue. You know, it affects security, it affects well-being, it affects livelihoods, and indeed one of the, the key outcomes of the forum this year was the adoption of a new security statement um, in 2000 in Kiribati at the forum, the annual leaders meeting in 2000 on the island of Bikitawa, the leaders adopted a declaration about regional security. That was at a time, people may remember back, you know, the late 90s, uh, early 2000s, there was conflict in the Solomon Islands between rival militias. There was a coup in Fiji in 2000, indeed, a attempted coup in, in the Solomons in 2000. Um, there was a period of concern about terrorism with 9-11 and so on. And uh, the Howard government was, you know, interventionist at that time. And we saw under the Bikitawa framework... Regional interventions such as RAMSEY, the regional assistance mission to Solomon Islands, which was an Australian-led intervention involving police, military and also civilian personnel, ran over 13 years, cost $2.8 billion, a major, major regional initiative. So Bikitaa provided the framework for interventions like that in Nauru, in Fiji, and the biggest one, of course, RAMSEY. But there's a feeling there was a need to broaden the security agenda to address climate change because you wouldn't know it from reading Australian newspapers, where, of course, the biggest threat to the Pacific is not climate, but this is, in fact, China, and that's the headlines that you see in Australia. For our neighbouring Pacific countries, climate change is seen as a security issue, not purely as an environmental issue, not purely as an ecosphere issue, although those are obviously centrally important, but as affecting their national Regional security. This year, the leaders adopted a quite unprecedented agreement called the Boy Declaration, named after a district in um, uh, Nauru, just outside the uh, the capital. And the Boy Declaration states very clearly that climate change is the greatest single threat, single greatest threat, to be technically precise, the single greatest threat to well-being, to security, and to livelihoods of the peoples of the Pacific.
1: That was unexpected.
7: Well, Pacific Country wasn't unexpected for people in the Pacific Islands.
1: No, it was prepared. unexpected
7: for people in Canberra. Mm. And I think it's unexpected for most of the Pacific, uh, sorry, the Australian population who don't know much about the Pacific, that, you know, the strength of government opinion, and this is elite governments, this is not, you know, what civil society is saying, uh, even more urgent action required. This is the governments of all of our neighbouring countries, including New Zealand, signing on to a statement, and indeed Australia, has signed onto the statement saying that climate change is the single greatest threat to the well being, security and livelihoods of the peoples of the Pacific. And so it's broadening the agenda beyond state centered national security, beyond issues around policing, cybersecurity, law enforcement and so on, all of which are very important for island governments, to a much broader agenda around human security, around environmental security, and those terms are uh, explicitly used in the Boyd Declaration. And the obvious question then is, if there are these multiple threats to security, which range from things like illegal and unreported fishing in Pacific maritime zones that need aerial surveillance and patrol boats and so on to track down illegal fishers, to human security, which is how do people living in a village in a rural isolated outpost of a Pacific island country address questions around violence against women, around the threat to agricultural livelihoods that comes from climate change. How do you have that all-encompassing notion of security? The obvious question is where do you put your resources to address all those threats? And the obvious point is if climate change is the single greatest threat, surely we should be putting most resources into addressing that greatest single threat. And I think what we see at the moment is the imbalance where the major powers, the ANZUS allies, Australia, New Zealand, the United States and France, put most of their resources into a classic notion of state-centred security um, that's geared towards strategic denial, that's geared towards keeping foreign powers, and the obvious one is a country beginning in capital C, keeping them out of the islands. And so you only have to look at the headlines in the Australian newspaper over the last few weeks where they're you know, talking about Australia needs to build a military base in Manus, Australia needs to pay for submarine cables to Solomon Islands, to PNG, to other countries to stop Huawei, the Chinese corporation, building them. You know, we have to fund the military base, the Black Rock military base in Fiji, which is a new regional peacekeeping initiative, to stop the Chinese doing it, and so on and so on. The China, you know, the China drum is beaten all the time in uh, the, the Australian media, and very few people look at what's actually been agreed by the leaders saying, yes, of course we need to address those questions about the broader state-centred security, but we want a much broader notion of security that encompasses human security, environmental security. We also need to put the resources behind that.
1: And that's the first part of uh, a two-part interview with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan about his recent visit to Nauru. Next week we'll be hearing more about the Pacific Islands Forum And also Nick's impressions of the island of Nauru where the Australian concentration camps are, the impact on the people there and also the impact on him meeting the people stuck in that hellhole. It's just on five (coughs) o'clock. Friends of the Earth's Walk This Way is back. Join us on Saturday, October 13th on a sponsored walk of Melbourne's beautiful Bayside Tracks to launch our new waste and consumption campaign and take action on climate change. Together, we'll walk 15 kilometres and raise $20,000 for Friends of the Earth. We'll be highlighting key issues around climate resilience, rising sea levels and plastic pollution in our oceans. Getting involved is simple. Sign up online at walkthisway.org.au Get sponsored, spread the word, and get walking. Join us as we journey through coastal communities who are most vulnerable to the impact of climate change. We'll finish up with a community picnic in the Katani Gardens in St Kilda. Friends of the
5: Earth is a proud supporter of 3 Are we on a path? To totalitarianism, Are governments and technocrats developing technologies that hand them greater control over our lives? In the face of such far-reaching webs of control, what
1: are we to do? With speculative minds Lizzie O'Shea, Timothy Eric Strom, and Jacob Greck, we're going to be exploring these questions and more through a live panel discussion. Tune in on Wednesday, September 26th. From 7 a.m. on 3CR Breakfast, where we contemplate the
5: societies of the future. Let's reclaim our minds from the cultural engineers.
1: Next to Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Bob, could we start with Roundup and what was Monsanto? Recently, there was the court case in California where a council worker was awarded $289 million for his lymphoma cancer. Can you just clarify the decision by the the judge in awarding that amount of money?
0: Well, it was actually a jury trial, so the jury were asked a series of questions. There are quite a number of them. They all comprehensively agreed that Duane Johnson's uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma was um, caused by the active ingredient in Roundup, glyphosate, and as a result, the judge awarded $289 million against the company. We'd have to go back and look at the dozen or so questions that the judge asked the jury to make determinations about, but uh, it was sufficient at least for her to award a very substantial sum against the new owners of uh, Monsanto, which is the Bayer company, Bayer Crop Science.
1: And Bayer's got some more on the books, haven't they? Some more cases?
0: Yes, there are some eight or 9,000 other people with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in the USA who are now also claiming that their disease is, a, is the result of exposure to glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup. So as a result, of course, Bayer's uh, uh, share price took a pretty serious hit straight away as well and hasn't recovered. It's interesting times in the chemical industry.
1: Is it also true that New Farm is developing or has developed Roundup as well?
0: No, New Farm has actually gone out of developing it. New Farm was the major producer and uh, marketer of uh, Roundup in Australia until recently and I believe that the main... Marketer now is Chem China, which took over Syngenta about uh, two years ago. There's a concentration of ownership in the chemical industry and in the seed industry too. As a result, Bayer now owns Monsanto and is the biggest seed and chemical company in the world. Chem China and Syngenta are big time in the same area. And now we have Dow and DuPont, who got together, which got together, and uh, they are now known as Corteva Agroscience. And then there's a little player on the side, BASF, which is uh, of the same origins as Bayer. Uh, When Bayer took over Monsanto, it had to divest itself of quite a few of its assets as a result of the antitrust people saying, you can't do that because you'll be a monopoly. The consequence of that is that Bayer sold quite a number of its assets to BASF, also a German company. So those four players now own something of the order of 60% of uh, all seed, commercial seed in the world, and somewhere around 70% of all agrochemicals. They are giants, and um, as a result, this little cartel of companies, I think, are going to play havoc in the future with the uh, price and availability of food and other commodities worldwide.
1: Just to get back to that court case, there will be an appeal that's been noted. Does that mean that those other law cases can't go ahead before the awaiting the appeal?
0: I'm not sure about that. I imagine that they could come into court. The thing about the Johnson versus Monsanto case is that it, if it does go on appeal, uh, and it will be up to the courts to decide, to decide that as well. The uh, initial judgment was made in a in a lower court, so. It should have places to go and to be appealed. But it, as in Australia, I think the High Courts can always decide, as they did in the Marsh v Baxter case about the GM contamination in Western Australia, that they won't take the case if they consider that it was um, judged well or was outside their jurisdiction in the first place and that they're happy with the decision.
1: Where does all this fit with the Agent Orange that was... It was put all over Vietnam, and I suppose it was on Laos as well during the the American War on Vietnam. Has any cases come out of that at all?
0: I'm not aware of any, but the Vietnamese government, as a result of the um, Californian decision, did say that uh, they were looking for compensation from the companies for the health impacts that are still visited on the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the Vietnamese who are exposed to Agent Orange in that war, it was contaminated with dioxins, which are a very potent teratogen, that's to say something that causes genetic um, defects, and the effects of that are seen widely in the Vietnamese community among those who, uh, who were impacted either as service personnel or even as civilians during the American War on Vietnam. As a result, they're saying now Dwayne Johnson has been compensated and the company should be thinking about compensating the Vietnamese victims of uh, what turns out to be um, a pretty bad dealing uh, on the part of um, Monsanto, which knew that its uh, herbicides were contaminated with dioxins but didn't publicise the fact and didn't tell the US government, which sprayed tens of millions of litres of those herbicides across Vietnamese farms and forests during that war.
5: But
1: the American soldiers, they were compensated, weren't they, when they took their cases in America?
0: Well, there has been some admission and some compensation, yes, and to Vietnam vets here in Australia as well. But many of those people, of course, have died prematurely as a result It's a bit like Dwayne Johnson. It was only the fact that the Californians now expedite cases into court where someone is going to die and is going to not be compensated before their death. The courts have said that they will consider those cases, put them higher on the list and speed them up. But the Vietnamese Vietnamese and and, and the vets from that war were not given that priority, that special treatment, and as a result many of them have gone to their deaths uncompensated and that continues. Legally I think and internationally these things need to be re-examined. We're not lawyers, Uh, we can't say how it should go but there must be some room to manoeuvre I'm sure. It's interesting that Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the scion of the Kennedy clan in the USA, has been the main lawyer on the Dwayne Johnson case and I don't know any detail, but um, his team, I believe, will be talking to those other victims and uh, trying to make sense of all of this, and let's hope it goes internationally because there are victims of these chemicals really around the world. And uh, when companies uh, are selling products that they know are either a poison or... Um, Are not what they purport to be like like roundup and and many others like agent orange the herbicide that was sprayed in vietnam then at some point they need to be held to account and not walk away for instance as james hardy did here in australia when they knew perfectly well that the asbestos products that they were selling were harming and killing people and the australian government allowed them to pick up their assets and take them overseas so that they could avoid liability. Our uh, previous Foreign Minister, Julie Bishop, was the lawyer engaged in that case, keeping people out of court until they died. Some of these people who have done these things need to be held to account as well, I think, for their uh, unprofessional behaviour.
1: A major concern still for Gene Ethics Network and others in the, the field is the refusal of the Australian Government to join the biosafety protocol it seems strange to me when you've got a federal government who talks about security and bioterrorism and you know the food the contamination of a few strawberries we're going to have 15 years jail yet they won't sign something like this
0: yes it is anomalous indeed the biosafety protocol is a protocol under the convention on biological diversity and it was set up 15 years ago now they've just had their 15th anniversary Um, 171 countries belong to it, but those countries that are the main exporters of genetically manipulated foods and crops, uh, the USA, Canada, Australia and others, have all said that they won't join the Biosafety Protocol which is supposed to make the international transfer, handling and use of genetically manipulated uh, seed, animals and other organisms, supposed to provide rules to do that safely. They don't belong to it and um, continue to refuse to do so, saying that it will disrupt trade. Well, if trade is to continue going smoothly, then I think that we need to ensure that biosecurity in particular is observed. And that is the issue about the strawberries and other things that pose a challenge to human health and the food supply. The first step for that is to have this framework, the Biosafety Protocol, in place and to start conforming with its rules. And yet Australia still says no, claiming that trade will be adversely affected. You know, so-called free trade is constrained in a whole number of ways. We think that it should be constrained according to the international rules of fair trade, not free trade.
1: But surely the other countries, you say 171, have signed they'll don't want to rent products from Australia into their country if they haven't signed on? Does that work that way?
0: Well, not under the trade agreements, it doesn't. You know, And, of course, we're writing more and more trade agreements, including the TPP 11, which is now in the federal parliament, to be signed. It's, to me, most shocking provision, which this federal government has stoutly refused to, um, to take out of the treaty, is the so-called... ISDS provision, the provision that says that if a company in your country is disadvantaged by some law that you pass to to protect the environment or to protect public health and safety, then the company can take the government to a kangaroo court set up with a, a trial committee of three trade lawyers and can be fined literally hundreds of millions or billions of dollars for affecting the the future profits of that company. These courts are regularly convened and do charge governments substantial fees for doing the right thing. This is uh, outrageous as well. I mean, the Australian case is the plain packaging of tobacco products in which Philip Morris found a trade agreement uh, with Singapore, resurrected that, a very ancient agreement, set up an office in Singapore and then took the Australian government to one, into one of those courts. Now, in that case, of course, Australia did eventually win, but the cost of taking the case at the taxpayer's expense was something of the order of 50 to $100 million. Yet the company walks away, is unaffected. It lost, yes, there is plain packaging of tobacco in Australia, but nonetheless, a case like that could easily have gone the other way, and our government would have been up for a lot of money, and the plain packaging would have had to have been taken uh, off those products, which are clearly harmful, which Philip Morris knows is harmful, and it's now rampantly promoting into, uh, into countries that are perhaps uh, less cautious about that than, um, than others. In, in Asia in particular, um, smoking is still rampant. People's health is being adversely affected. Those provisions in the trade agreements are just a lever for companies to exploit the situation and put themselves in the box seat against governments trying to do the right thing for their people and for their environments and public health.
1: And it's happening more and more in developing countries where governments are saying no to mining and they get taken to court, this part of the World Trade Organization, and a fine. Tens of millions, or if not hundreds of millions of dollars.
0: That is a classic example, yes. um, Some mining cases are already in the courts in Latin America, and uh, I believe one government, which I just can't recall offhand, um, lost a case recently for um, hundreds of millions of dollars. And this, of course, is against future profits, and uh, some of those mining activities are uh, horrendously impacting people's living space and uh, affecting public health as well and yet those governments are being fined for trying to do the right thing.
1: Looking at South Australia, the clean, green South Australia, looks as though the Liberal government's trying to overturn that.
0: Well, that was a promise that they made before the election, and now that they're in the box seat, yes, they are um, at least going to consider, with an so-called independent inquiry, uh, whether or not the um, moratorium on the growing of Genetically manipulated crops in South Australia should end. At the moment, the moratorium is due not to end until 2025. We're very happy with that situation. Kim Anderson, who's a very dry economist and has a track record of being very favourable to genetically manipulated crops and other gene technologies... Uh, has been appointed by government to review the moratorium. Meanwhile, though, the Parliament set up a select committee prior to his being appointed. They, too, are going to inquire into whether or not the moratorium on genetically manipulated crops in South Australia is a good idea or not, and also whether there is evidence of of benefits, costs and benefits, to the South Australian economy. Our point of view, of course, is that... um, A number of companies there, including San Remo Pasta, which is a very big pasta company, have taken the opportunity of the extension of the moratorium until 2025 to begin putting on their labels GM-free and gaining commercial benefits as a result of that. So we'll be arguing the case strenuously that uh, GM-free South Australia should remain and that the government should get back in its box and uh, stop pushing the boundaries.
1: Which inquiry has the most clout?
0: Well, that remains to be seen. Uh, the interesting thing is, is that as part of the extension which was put on the, uh, on the moratorium last year by the Parliament, that's till 2025, part of that agreement was that uh, any recommendation to overthrow the moratorium would have to go back to the Parliament and, debated and be debated in the Parliament. So at least we've got a balance on that. The government can't unilaterally lift the moratorium on its own, and I think that's going to be uh, good. It's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out, how the uh, balance of power and good sense in the Parliament really works in practice, because just a very small coterie of farmers are saying they want the ban lifted, and on the other side, most shoppers, the vast majority of the food industry, and in fact the vast majority of farmers all want the moratorium to stay However, our challenge is to uh, mobilise those people to actually raise their voices and have their say by the middle of October, uh, which um, in four weeks is a pretty, uh, pretty big request. But nonetheless, we're giving it our best shot and uh, we're hopeful of a positive outcome.
1: What's the difference between a ban and a moratorium?
0: Well, a moratorium does, up, does come up for review uh, periodically is always provisional whereas a ban is got more permanency i guess it's really just a matter of words we like to call it a ban other people like to call it a moratorium and that's to say this um, prohibition will be reviewed from time to time and indeed it has been reviewed three times before this is not new and uh, to their credit the south australian labor government kept the moratorium in place are uh, from 2003, and it's still in place now. So we're very confident, really, that um, it has served the South Australian government and the public very well and uh, that there are good reasons for it. But among the scientists and, uh, of course, the GM industry, they're chafing at the bit. It's symbolic, really, to overturn the ban in, in a state. It's in their face, really, because, uh, for instance, the companies, have to, when they want to transport their... Um, seed from, say, Victoria to Western Australia have to go round South Australia. They say that costs them money, inconvenient, and they simply don't like doing it. It's bad PR, really.
1: What's the situation here in Victoria?
0: Well, Victoria doesn't have a moratorium, not a general one at least, um, and some canola is grown, but the thing about the GM canola is that the farmers who have tried it didn't particularly find it profitable or um, assisted their uh, production system. So in Western Australia, uh, Victoria and New South Wales, where it is grown, proportion is going south, I could say. In Western Australia, for instance, last year, 30% of the crop the companies claimed was G- GM and this year it's only 20%, so uh, the farmers are voting with their feet. They're also, of course, getting premiums for GM-free canola. That's a big incentive for them to uh, not bother growing it.
1: How long does it take to get the certification that they're GM-free after they have had GM crops on their land?
0: Well, that's been up for debate as well. The, um, the only ones who are really um, interested in certifying GM-free is the organic industry, and... There was a move recently to question the three-year or the five-year in transition that they um, have set for a transition from a genetically manipulated crop or farm to an organic one. It's five years now, and some in the organic industry wanted to make it three, and that was um, successfully argued out, and five was retained. So we were pleased about that.
1: New Zealand, they want GM babies. Is that what's talked about
0: well that is a completely different topic but of course it's the same technology the new CRISPR so-called CRISPR technologies are coming along Uh, the old cut and paste GM techniques that have given us the crop plants we've just been discussing they've had their day uh, they're gone done and dusted and a new technique called CRISPR CRISPR I won't tell you what it stands for, it's very technical and long. It's on the scene and the industries and the scientists are calling it gene editing. It will be able to be used to alter the genetic makeup of any plant, animal, microorganism or human being. Scientists are talking up it up as the greatest thing in the world for manipulating genes. And yes, a group at Auckland University has been talking about germline gene manipulation in human beings, which of course means that the genetic changes could be passed on to future generations. This is an old discussion, of course. For the last century, people have talked about what they could do to uh, make the human race perfect. And uh, in America and, of course, in uh, Germany under the Nazis, uh, eugenics was uh, a big talking point a topic for discussion and the setting up of um, some pretty impressive industries to gas people. A lot of women were sterilised during those times because they were thought to be uh, mentally deficient and so on and were not allowed to procreate. It's got a pretty nasty history. And now with the gee whiz new CRISPR technologies, some scientists are starting to talk again about how they could uh, improve humans by with their genes using these new techniques as well it's the same old story as eugenics we hope that it will go the same way as um, previous experiments which were as I said carried out around the world really uh, with selection of the human population by other means
1: finally Bob if people want to keep informed of this
0: sure we've got website and Facebook um, Mm -hmm. I think Gene Ethics' Facebook page is the most likely spot to go at the moment, so just put in Gene, G-E-N-E, and Ethics and, uh, on Facebook and uh, get on board there. People can always give us a call, of course, one 133 868 or drop me a note at info at org. Gene Ethics is Gene, G-E-N-E, and Ethics put together. And uh, we'd be pleased to hear from any listeners who want to talk about any of the issues that we've raised today. Thanks, Bob. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Jan.
1: Thanks to Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Let's hear it from our friend, Rod.
0: And let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell.
5: for the launch of the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary on Saturday the 6th of October from 3 to 6pm at the Old Bar, Johnson Street Fitzroy. There'll be readings as well as music from Cold Hands, Warm Heart and Laura McFarlane. is free. Proceeds from the diary sales and 20% of the afternoon's bar takings will be donated to 3CR and the Rainforest Information Centre. So come read, drink and be merry. How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary Launch. The Old Bar Saturday 6th of October, 3 to 6pm. See you there at 3CR supporter.
1: On the program recently, we heard about a public meeting in Brisbane organised around the issue of the proposed Bougainville referendum due mid-next year. One of the three speakers was Graeme Double, who has had recent experience of living and working on Bougainville, where he was told by Australian DFAT to leave immediately without giving any substantial reason. Graham now lives in Byron Bay in northern New South Wales and I spoke with him at the weekend. Graham, you've crammed a great deal into your life, work and travel in a number of countries and the latest being Bogerville, but I'd like you to talk about your times here, and a little bit about the work you do here in the activism and art area.
3: Yes, at the moment I'm uh, working through Byron Community Centre, Byron Bay Community Centre. They have a very, very good theatre there, so I'm an event coordinator there for the many events that come through. And I'm also a manager for the Byron Community Markets, which I'm attempting to revamp in terms of bringing more local activity and local groups coming through it and arts and lots of things.
1: So event managing work has always been your priority, is that what you're saying?
3: I guess I've moved between event management or um, arts and cultural program, uh, program management or business and documentary filmmaking.
1: Now I'd like to talk about that documentary filmmaking, the one that you made here not sure how many years ago and I did, never did get round to seeing And It's called Frame Up, Who Bombed the Hilton and Who Didn't.
3: Uh, yes, one of my early ones and probably one I'm known most for. I co-produced and directed that with Arena Dunn and Nick Powell and it was about the Hilton bombing that happened in 1978. That documentary was shown all around Australia, uh, I think every university, uh, all the Labor Party branches, trade unions and eventually it was actually used as evidence and viewed by the magistrate in the case where the three convicted Amanda people were acquitted.
1: Just take us back to that Hilton bombing, for people who are maybe younger.
3: (laughs) Yeah, it was a little while ago, but it was considered to be the first real terrorist act in Australia, although there are previous ones, but it was such a high-profile one. It was at a time when both ASIO and state special branch in New South Wales and South Australia were under extreme pressure for what really amounted to criminal activity on both of their parts, and they were uh, special branches were going to be closed down, and ASIO was going to have their budget massively curtailed. And right at that time, there was the Chogham heads of government, Commonwealth heads of government meeting. In Sydney, so you had heads of government from all over the world there. It was a massive event. And, of course, there were many protests as well outside the Hilton at that time. And what happened was a bomb went off that we believe was planted in a garbage bin outside in George Street. A uh, garbage truck came along, picked up the rubbish, put it in the back of the truck compressed it and it exploded and people died in that luckily it was the middle of the night sort of thing and so there wasn't that many injuries this resulted in uh, a huge investigation that eventually three members of the meditation group in Andamaga were arrested and convicted then seven years in jail for this and then were acquitted and that's the most important point they were fully acquitted A fellow, Evan Pedrick, has actually been convicted of it since then, but his testimony is so full of holes that it appears that he actually didn't have anything to do with it, really.
1: Were they compensated for those lost seven years?
3: Oh, an absolute trivial amount. They were compensated for seven years wrongly imprisoned in jail, $100,000 each when the going amount in New Zealand and in Britain on similar kinds of miscarriages of justice is a million dollars each. And this was basically to just shut everyone up because people were saying this was such a travesty of justice. So, yeah, it was a token amount.
1: When did you get to meet the three men?
3: I knew them before they were actually arrested on these charges and then subsequently went on to make the documentary about it with Varenda and Nick.
1: All right. Well, who bombed the Hilton and who didn't?
3: (laughs) Uh, Well, that's what the documentary is about. At that time, they hadn't yet been acquitted. So this documentary was explaining the case in detail in an attempt to set them free, which it ultimately did along with the work of an enormous amount of people not just our documentary, but who did it. No one knows exactly who did it except those who did it, but what you need to do is to follow who benefited from the bombing. Clearly, Anandamaga didn't benefit from the bombing, and it's not the sort of thing they do. They are a socially active meditation organization, but they're not terrorists. So they didn't do it. Who else might have done it? You need to go back to what I said initially, which was that ASIO and Special Branch were in deep, deep trouble. When the bomb went off, all of that totally evaporated. ASIO's budget was tripled. Special Branch were allowed to continue in doing what they were doing. And what ASIO had been doing illegally was actually made legal. So they were doing illegal phone tappings and house breakings and an enormous amount of things. These were all legalised after the Hilton bombing. So you have to ask the question, if those were the ones who benefited from it, did someone within those organisations do it? And there's a lot of evidence that points to that.
1: We look at the lives of those three men now. One, of course, is Dr. Tim Anderson, well known on 3CR, who were the other men? Have you been able to keep in touch with them or do they keep in touch with you?
3: Yeah, we're in touch generally, not on a regular basis, but um, Paul lives up in Mullaney now and Ross, I can't remember where he is, somewhere in Australia, just living a good life and putting all that behind them.
1: Overseas, now you've been overseas many, many times. Tell us about some of the, the adventures you've got up to overseas.
3: Oh, besides doing a lot of travelling. I've actually uh, worked in a number of countries in various roles, mostly around international development. I ended up in Sudan a few years ago, Sudan in Africa. And uh ended up making a number of documentaries there, some for the United Nations, the World Health Organization. I do some medical documentary work. Uh, so I was working for the Sudanese Center for Research into Mycetoma, which is a very interesting tropical disease that's either a bacteria and or a virus, and it's a tropical flesh-eating bacteria. The one I really enjoyed in Sudan was making a documentary for archaeologists. A lot of people don't realise there's more pyramids in Sudan than there is in Egypt. Archaeologists working on iron production 3,000 years ago. So it's believed that Sudan was actually exporting iron to India and China and making it before it was even being made in Europe. So uh, the Sudanese history is fascinating.
1: Many countries to the north of Australia or to the north east of Australia, just leave out Bougainville for the moment. But you have done a lot of work in Asia.
3: In Asia, yes. Spent a lot of time in India. A couple of years in Bangladesh, Thailand, traveled through Cambodia, etc. Bangladesh was very interesting because I arrived into Bangladesh in 2008 when they had just had their first real democratic elections in 30 years. Members of both sides of parliament had to be released from jail for the elections to happen. And Sheikh Hasina won the election at that time. And she was a reasonably good progressive and has managed to stay in and slowly advance Bangladesh, which is a very difficult and troubled country, largely due to the civil war with Pakistan at the time. But when I arrived there, there was an attempt to overthrow Sheikh Hasina's government with fundamentalist Muslim elements. It's still going back to the civil war of Pakistan, where they want to undermine Bangladesh. They attempted to overthrow the government, and I was just up the road from the military encampment where this began and I had uh, uh, media contact me to go in and film that as well. So I was kind of in the thick of that for a while, and luckily that was stopped. The military were going to go straight in and just shoot everyone, Sheikh Shaker turned up on the spot and said, no, let's have a look at what is happening and send people in to negotiate, and that basically stopped the bloodbath. Yeah, that was good.
1: And you've basically stayed out of trouble in the different countries that you've been to
3: <laughs> yes, I had stayed out
1: of trouble. I'm just thinking about yeah. Ind- when you were in Indonesia or recently Thailand, there's been a lot of um, problems in a few of the countries to our north.
3: Yes, there has. There's a lot of things going on and many countries are struggling and saying they need to approach democracy in their own manner. And this is hard to understand when we come from the Westminster one, of like, well, how can you do it where your military is jumping in and out and so on? And in some countries, I think this is a valid way of looking at a country progressing. So if I take Sudan, for instance, where currently it's ruled by a military dictatorship where the president is wanted for war crimes and crimes against humanity, talking to Sudanese friends... There, they kind of go, well, we're very worried if there were to be an Arab Spring in Sudan, as Egypt had, that it would actually disrupt the whole country so badly that it might fall totally into uncontrollable civil war like Libya or Syria. There are so many factions there. They say they would rather see a more moderate change in getting rid of the current president and some other group coming in within his own party and group where they're more moderate rather than just a total overthrow. And I can understand their concerns about that.
1: What was your focus in New Zealand?
3: I married a Kiwi. (laughs) (laughs) That was my main focus there. I think at the time when I first went over there, I was uh, teaching yoga and meditation.
1: The main focus today is going to be on Bougainville. Have Mm. you had an interest and involvement with Bougainville going back many years?
3: No, I don't. I knew about the Bougainville Civil War. I didn't really learn as much as I now know about it. And and that's largely due to the way Australian media handled it. And they didn't really inform very much of the Australian public what was happening there. It was a 10-year civil war that uh, ended up in the death of 20,000 people. It was a shocking situation where Rio Tinto was mining the largest copper and gold mine in the world with no regard for the local people. Their tailings were being just washed into the local river, which they hoped would go down the mountain and out into the sea. That river, 25 years later, is still dead. It's still dead 25 years later. That and many other things resulted in a civil war in Bougainville. If I can place it in perspective, Bougainville is the northern part of the Solomons Archipelago. And German colonialists came and took that part back in the mid-18th century and since then, Bougainvillians have been trying to get out from under colonialism. After the First World War, the British took it on. After the Second World War, the British handed it over to Australia to to manage it for them. Uh, then Australia, with its other interests, which was Papua New Guinea, said, OK, we're going to give Papua New Guinea independence. And Bougainville said, but we're different. We're different people. And Australia basically said, shut up, you're part of Papua New Guinea, that's what we're going to do. For a 100 years, more than that, 150 years, Bougainvilleans have been saying, we are a very different people, we speak a different language, we have a different culture, we look different and we want to determine our own destiny. And this totally boiled over in the 90s with a civil war that, decimated the entire island of Bougainville and the main issue with that was that Papua New Guinea blockaded the island of Bougainville with Australia's assistance Australia supplied training and weapons and boats and helicopters to do that and it did result in the death of many people in Bougainville because no medicines came in there were no hospitals, no doctors we're talking about a decade of this so Australia is complicit in, in how what has happened in Bougainville. So at the end of that decade of fighting, Bougainville won the war, and I believe they were the only people to win a war based on environmental reasons. And the peace agreement brokered was that there would be a time of bringing the community together again and rebuilding it, and then there would be a referendum in 2019 as to whether Bougainville would become an independent country and that's where we're at at the moment.
1: You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with Graeme Double who has recently been in Bougainville. How did you get to go to Bougainville?
3: Volunteered with Australian Volunteers International There was a very interesting position that was right up my alley. It was a festival coordinator and mentor for the Bougainville Government's Department of Primary Industries for a chocolate festival. And I went, oh, this is wonderful. It's, It's my area of work. It's a chocolate festival, and it's in Bougainville. I get to contribute to their redevelopment. So I, I volunteered, they accepted me, and sent me over there for a, a period of time.
1: What was that period of time that you were to be there?
3: Last year, 2017, for a four-and-a-half-month period.
1: Whereabouts were you based?
3: I was based in Booker, which is the current capital of Bougainville, in the small island of Booker, at the, at the north, the very north end of the Bougainville Island.
1: What were your impressions of the place?
3: absolutely wonderful people um it's not just little villages with bamboo huts or something there's a lot of development going on the people do have quite an understanding of their situation and where they're going and what what intrigued me mostly was it is a fascinating culture with a lot of aspects where they could, given the right situation, become role models for the entire Pacific region. Uh, it's a matrilineal society. They've already embraced in quite a number of aspects alternative energy sources. They have a hydro dam, they're building a second one, they're looking at wave generated energy in the in the Booker Straits. Um, they've set up an autonomous Bougainville government as part of the peace treaty and alongside that they've set up a council of heads of all the villages which is running in tandem with the Bougainville government uh, so there's, there's a lot of very interesting things that could happen there but unfortunately we have a generation of young people with no schooling because of the civil war there's a lot of unemployment, a lot of drug and alcohol abuse, all of these things are being tackled.
1: Were you on the main island as well?
3: Oh, yes, I was travelling down there regularly because the chocolate festival was down in Arawa, the old capital, where the main Paguna mine is up the hill from there.
1: And where is the cocoa harvested from?
3: Ah, right, okay, so Bougainville had... um, cacao trees planted all through it when the Germans arrived and the particular trees they chose have turned out to be some of the best cacao in the world. Cocoa really can be considered like a wine or a coffee in the types of intensities of flavor and and so on that is in it. Most chocolate in the world is just all the beans are lumped together and it's just bulk chocolate that's made. But there is a growing artisan market, artisan chocolate, boutique chocolate, which is the best, the most incredible flavours. And Bougainville has some of the best beans in the world, but people don't know this yet. And this is why there was to be the second chocolate festival of which I was meant to be there for to
1: manage this. Meant to be there to manage it?
3: Yes, I arrived and was informed by the Department of Primary Industries, the Bougainville Department, that the the Australian DFAT, our, our Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, had said they wanted to fund the entire festival, but they would manage it, not the Bougainville Department of Primary Industry. So I had to take on a secondary role of assisting them.
1: And how was their management different to what you would have done?
3: I ran into quite some difficulties with DFAT because they didn't seem to really understand how to do a festival how to do events I was in a difficult position of having to raise various issues and say well why are you doing it like this? What is happening here? Um, This is not the usual way to do things which got me into a bit of trouble with them
1: what was the elephant in the room?
3: Well, when I started to raise issues around why haven't you got, or they actually had a website and a Facebook site, why aren't you opening those and placing information for the world to know about the chocolate festival? And they had an excuse that they needed a password and they couldn't get it. <laughs> And uh, when I raised, well, why don't I open a web page in the Department of Primary Industries? And I was told, no, you cannot open a web page. You cannot open a Facebook page. And these things just left me quite confused. And it was one after the other, which just didn't make sense. And as I raised those, eventually I was told to shut up.
1: So what was the elephant in the room?
3: Well, it's really a matter of... DFAT said, asked uh, AVI, my, my uh, employers, that I should be sent back to Australia and they refused to do that because I hadn't actually done anything wrong.
1: Can I just stop you for a moment? What's DFAT yeah. got to do with AVI anyway?
3: Well, DFAT does fund AVI. But indirectly, AVI is its own, it's an NGO that runs volunteers around the world in international development. They're a wonderful organisation. I'd commend anyone to join it if you want to get involved in something overseas and you have skills. But it has nothing to do with it. DFAT just spoke with them and said, we want you to to, uh, send your person, Graham, back to Australia. And when asked why, they were just told that I wasn't a, a, a team follower And I didn't understand the big picture. That was their only reason for me being sent back. And the question has to ask, what team did they expect me to be playing on? And what was the big picture? And eventually the Chocolate Festival went ahead, but under the management of DFAT, no one in the world knew about this. In effect, it went on in Bougainville, it happened, but it didn't get out to the world that there was this incredible chocolate, this incredible cacao beans that could be there. Now, artisan chocolate, artisan cocoa beans, fetches top dollar. So if this were to succeed, because there is so much good cacao there, it would be a very, very good income source for Bougainville. You have to ask the question... What was going on? Were they just that incompetent? I spoke to a lot of people, what I, what I thought was going on with this. And all I can say is that they did, in effect, put a stop to, at that time, COCO being considered as a serious income source for Bougainville as it goes into its referendum and as it tries to govern its region, its area. And what was happening alternative to that was that the Bougainville government was being told by many different stakeholders that the only way they could go forward, the only way they would ever have independence, was that they must open mining again. And so you have to ask the question, if DFAT was putting a stopper on the cocoa industry as an income source, was it because they wanted mining to be the only possible option for Bougainville to go forward?
1: I still can't understand what we were doing in Bougainville. There are, you
3: well, know... The Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. they work in a lot of different areas of international development and uh, Australia has... A very heavy contingent in Bougainville. They have the only office outside of Port Moresby, the capital of PNG, in Bougainville. How so seriously they're taking it.
1: Well, they're taking the mining seriously, aren't they?
3: They are, yes. But there's many things going on in the whole geopolitical situation of the Asia Pacific, and everyone sort of knows now about. China is getting quite involved in the Pacific area, and Australia is very concerned about this, but it's not just Australia. Australia has said that they consider themselves the deputy sheriff of America in the Asia-Pacific region. So, in my opinion, that whole approach is a very colonial approach. It doesn't bode well uh, uh, for Australia. Rather than being there and supporting... Bougainville to determine its own future where they want to go I think Australia's diplomatic approach is we want to manage these countries we want to direct them where we think they should be going rather than empowering them to go ahead and determine their own future.
1: How many farmers and artisans do you believe were impacted by this decision by Defect.
3: Well, I think it was the whole, the whole region of Bougainville. Mm. It's not just an individual farmer. He eh? has, what is it, 250,000 people in Bougainville. It would have affected the entire country to not support their cocoa industry to go forward on the international stage.
1: What other industries are there that could be an economic support for a new country?
3: Maybe just to put it in context, up until the end of last year, the Bougainville government was saying very clearly that we have to open mining. And this was under the insistence, as I said, of many stakeholders, of PNG and and lots of different international mining groups are there trying to get in. There's, there's mining potential all over Bougainville, not just the Paguna, Copper and Gold mine. Up until the end of last year, the Bougainville government is going, we have to go forward, we have to open the Paguna mine. And there was a lot of controversy around this, where many people going, no, 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 we don't want the mine. And there was a lot of confusion as to whether the local landholders, the indigenous landholders of the Paguna mine area, wanted the mine open. And as part of the peace treaty, what was stipulated in that was that before any mining can be done, indigenous landholders must give their consent, as well as the Bougainville government. And so there was confusion there. And finally, at the beginning of this year, the Bougainville government had a special inquiry that went down to try and sort out, because there were different groups claiming ownership of the land and claiming to speak for the owners of the land. When this committee went down and investigated, they came back with an absolutely clear consensus that the local Indigenous landholders did not want the mine opened. At that point, the Bougainville government could clearly say, we're not going ahead with mining at this stage, without upsetting these stakeholders who were... Splashing a lot of money around.
1: They might be splashing a lot of money around, but you've only got to look back to when that mine was operating. The money wasn't splashed around for the people then.
3: No, it absolutely wasn't. I am hoping that mining is held at hands-arms distance at this stage. Bougainville has a lot of things it has to determine. Uh, They have the referendum next year, Everyone is saying that 80% of Bougainvilleans will vote to secede from Papua New Guinea. But there are a couple of provisos on that. Alexander Downer was the foreign minister at the time, and he made two provisos on the peace agreement. One was that, yeah, you can go ahead and vote whether you want to have independence or not, but you cannot have independence unless Papua New Guinea agrees. And you cannot have independence unless you get rid of all weapons, everything. <laughs> and it's so huge that it would mean Bougainville would have to get rid of more weapons than Papua New Guinea has. So it's, it's a very strange situation, and within that is the ability to govern. If you have independence, that you have the ability to govern. And Papua New Guinea is holding back the funds to their region of Bougainville. And so the government is constantly struggling to try and implement all of the components of proper governance. Those things are enormous challenges for Bougainville.
1: Will you go back?
3: I'd love to go back. I was invited to come back for this year's Chocolate Festival by the Department of Primary Industries. And I said, if I'm not doing other work... uh, Last year I had some time where I could take off that time from my my paid work this year i'm a bit more busy but i would love to go back i have a lot of wonderful friends there and my heart goes out to them that they can make their area their region work as they want it
1: i've been speaking with graham double who last year was unceremoniously kicked out of bougainville and as i said The elephant in the room, and I think you've worked that one out for yourself. It's coming up to three minutes to six o'clock. That's all for me for today, but I will be back next Tuesday at four o'clock. So stay tuned for Done By Law coming up right on six o'clock.
5: Bye for now.